0: Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. We hope you enjoy this teaching by Pastor Tom Dick. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. Good morning. My name is Tom Dick. Oh, I'm sorry. Good morning. morning. My name is Tom Dick. (laughs) I'm the family pastor here at Southland, and um, today I get the chance to speak as well. And uh, it's a great, great privilege. It was uh, amazing last night, and I'm excited to to speak again this morning. Now, many of you uh, might be familiar with uh, my testimony and my wife's testimony, because we showed it uh, during the Christmas uh, um, testimony time, around the Christmas time. So... um, but it was very short, and I wanted, I'm, I'm going to be talking about fostering and adopting this morning, and I wanted, so I wanted to set the stage by sharing our testimony a little bit again, just to recap on it. So um, in September, on September 22nd, 2011, so just about six years ago, I was in our prayer room here at church, not this one, not even the old one, it was like the old, old one, and I was uh, in Isaiah, and I happened to be four days late in my reading plan, so I wasn't even in the right place that I should have been reading for that day. It was driving me crazy. And uh, I got to Isaiah 58. Now, as I read Isaiah 58, I had read it many times before because I've read through the Bible many times. And, uh, but as I read it this time, something in me started to change, like my heart sort of quickened, you know? I felt this emotion rising up in me, and it was hard to explain. And uh, Isaiah 58... Uh, speaks about true fasting. Now, here at the church, we love fasting. It's so fun. We teach fasting. It's a value. We believe in living a fasted lifestyle where we are sacrificial. And, um, and the nation of Israel also loved fasting. They loved fasting because I think it meant when they did fasting, they could kind of check that off their spiritual report card, right? They could say, yes, I fasted. And then they could feel good about that. And God said, but when you fast, you aren't fasting with the correct heart. God is far more concerned with the condition of the heart than the religious rules we follow. He's far more concerned about that. So this is what he was saying. He said, look, you do as you please on the day of your fast, and you oppress your workers. You fast with contention and strife. You strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Will the fast I choose be like this, a day for a person to deny himself and to bow his his head like a reed, to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Isn't the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke and to set the oppressed free and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the poor and homeless into your house and clothe the naked when you see them and not ignore your own flesh and blood? Then your light will appear like the dawn. And your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you, and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. At that time, when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, he will say, "Here I am." And I was reading this on my um, on my iPad, so I was able to email the whole chapter to my wife. And I said, "Sweetie, you need to spend some time with this." And in the evening, she came to me and she said, What, what was that about? Why did you send that to me?" And I said, "You know, I don't know exactly." except to say that I feel as though God is preparing us for something really big, and I don't know what it is. So, rewinding six months from that day, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a social worker here in town. He, um, he's a Christian guy, so we happened to be at some youth pastor meetings at the same time, and he's just, I, I really adore him. He's a good, good friend of mine. And uh, I said, we, we had a we had a common friend, or there was, a, there was a student or a family on his caseload that also came to church here, and I knew them well. I had met them at summer camp, I had baptized a brother and sister from this family, um, and I also knew, because they had remained in the church, that things were difficult, tricky, broken in their family. And so I had told Trevor that if it ever came to it, if Caitlin ever needed the daughter, would ever need a place to go, don't send her to a, a hotel in Winnipeg in an emergency. At least give us a call, and we would consider taking her for the weekend. And, um, uh, and that was what they, they did in, uh, up until last year, is if they didn't have a, a bed to place children in, then they would put them in a hotel in Winnipeg. And there would be four kids per room or something, and, and there would be four rooms uh, supervised by one person. And they'd eat junk food and watch TV, because that's what you do in a hotel, right? And it's not a healthy environment at all for a child to be in. I said, don't do that. Well, Trevor reminded me of that conversation on Friday, September 23rd. He said, you remember when we talked about six months ago and I said, uh, vaguely? He said, well, it's come to that place. Uh, We need to take Caitlin from her home because it's no longer safe for her there, and we're wondering if you will take her as an emergency placement um, in your home. And we did. So that day, I remember it very distinctly. Caitlin came into our house and sat with her arms crossed at our table. We laugh about that today so I can share it. She was grumpy and angry, although we didn't know how angry she really was. She hid it very well. And uh, we had salmon. I remember that. (laughs) And... uh, and then Trevor left. The social workers left. They didn't stay. We said, What are we supposed to do? They're like, Be a family. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> and then on uh, Monday or Tuesday, Trevor came to us and he said, Look, it looks like this is going to be an extended thing. Would you consider uh, keeping Caitlin in your home? And we said, Well, we didn't say yes immediately. We, we prayed about it uh, for a few days because we knew that that would change everything. And it did. And so, Caitlin became our daughter, and she was on the screens. She's our adopted daughter. She's 21 now. Um, But more than just her becoming our daughter happened that day. As time went on, we began to realize something, and that is that God had placed a calling on our lives that would not end when she moved out. It wouldn't end when she, you know, they call it aging out of the system, which is a horrible term in my opinion and they age out at 20 or 18 or 21, depending on how they go, then we would, um, the call remained even after that. So when we built our new home in 2013, we built it with the intention of taking one more child in. And uh, although we did tell our social worker that we were open to taking a sibling as well. And then what happened was we waited. We moved in at Christmas, and we waited, and we waited, and waited. We said, aren't there so many kids who need a home, and why are they not coming to our home? And we were so excited, and a couple months went past. And then at the end of February, beginning of March, my wife Tara had a dream. And in that dream, she dreamt that the social worker had come to us and offered us two twin boys. Um, And uh, they were about nine months old something like that and so in the morning she told me this dream and then she told our social worker and he said and what did you say in your dream (laughs) and we said yes in our dream and then time went on again and near the end of april it was the week of our anniversary it destroyed our anniversary plans the social worker called he didn't call us he called tara and tara then called me to tell me that the twins were on their way and that's how it went no discussion because we had already talked about it from the dream And two precious little boys moved in with us. They were nine months old. They were undernourished. We had to um, work very hard to get them healthy. But within two weeks, um, it was incredible how fast they grew. Three months later, their older brother joined our family, and uh, he was three years old, and our life as we knew it ended. We didn't date for eight months. We just kind of put our life and marriage on hold (laughs) for eight months while this kid moved in with us. It was very challenging. Now, those three brothers were with us for nearly two years, and we had dreamt, as we got to know them and love them, that we would raise them as our own children. But as happens, um, a relative came into the picture, and uh, he qualified to take them into his home, And so after 16 months of loving these children, they left, and we were heartbroken. Pain that you could actually not possibly imagine. I didn't know it was possible to feel that much pain over a child that wasn't, you know, biologically yours. It was incredible. And um, uh, we wept and wept and wept. And as people were asking how we were doing, the only way I could describe it was to say, it's as if we're waiting for three of our children to die. And that's really how it felt. We were waiting for three of our children to leave, and we haven't seen them since um, December 7th of not last year, but the year before. So it's been a long time. Then about a year ago, we entered into a new program. We joined an emergency foster home program. It was the replacement for the hotels. It's not allowed to put kids in hotels anymore. So there's now emergency homes that will take in children right after they've been apprehended from their homes, and they stay with us for the shortest uh, stay was three days, but that's very, very unusual. Normally, uh, the longest was uh, three months, and often it's somewhere in between there. And so, over the last 12 months, we've had 15 children come and join our house. They stay with us until there's a permanent solution, and you know, of the kids who come into our home, half of them have gone back to relatives. Mom, dad, grandma, auntie, stuff like that. So it's been a very, very rewarding thing to see families reunited. And uh, some people, oh, I should say, we, so in total, we've had 19 foster children, uh, most of them in the last year, one now who, whom is adopted, which means that along with our two biological children, we have 21 children, and we do think of them all as our children. They're still all on my prayer list. They they all get prayed for by name. We love them. And we'll always think of them as our children. People think we're nuts. Sometimes we think we're nuts. But we've found a mission for our family that is absolutely from God. And happily, at Southland, we're not alone. In this church, there are 85 foster and adoptive families, and that's not counting the ones we don't know, because we couldn't count them then, and it, can't, and it doesn't count the ones that have grown foster children. It doesn't count them either. There's many of those as well. This comprises approximately 15% of all the families at our church who have children living at home or foster or adoptive families. We have somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 to 300 kids in our church who have either been adopted or they're in the foster care system right now. That's an incredible statistic. And I've been thinking a lot about that this year, about why that is. I promise you that is an anomaly in the North American church. I promise you that. I know the statistics. The statistics for Canada are um, there are 11,000 children in care in our province alone. There are 80,000 across Canada. 30,000 of those kids are available for adoption right at this moment. They're they're called paper ready. (laughs) They're ready to be adopted. In the States, uh, and there's less than one foster family per church if you, if you do the average across Canada. In the United States, it's even worse. There's one foster family for every four churches. And uh, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 500,000, 400 000 to 500,000 uh, kids who are available to be adopted right now. And that number, although it seems really high, listen to this. If just one family from every church in America would decide to adopt, they would eliminate the waiting list. Eliminate it. There would be no more waiting lists. There would, no, there would no longer be orphans on a waiting list to be adopted if just one family in every church in America would choose to adopt. That's staggering. So our church is an anomaly, and I believe there's some really compelling reasons for that. And so today I want to teach you uh, some things that I've learned about um, foster and adoption, about God, and it really comes down to two things. Uh, there's two things I learned, and they're somewhat unconnected, and I, I tried my very, very best to make them connect. I really did. I, I labored in vain in my office this week to be creative, and then I told—who laughed at that? And then I went to Chris Dirksen, and he said, sometimes being creative is too much work. So I have essentially two messages for you this morning. I have two points that I've learned that I'm going to speak about, and, and uh, the second one I feel is the more important one, but I'm going to start with the first one. And, uh, and so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to start. Father, thank you for this chance to share our heart and what we've learned about fostering and about what your heart is for adoption, about what your calling is on our lives. And God, I pray that um, as we listen this morning, uh, you would just reaffirm the exact mission that you have for each one of us, as individual as it is. Amen. The first thing we learned is that God has a calling on our life. Now, I love memorizing scripture because, and the last time I spoke, I actually spoke on memorizing scripture in summer, and I love it. And since then, I've even loved it more because I found an app. I found an app that helps me memorize scripture, and this app is terribly motivating because um, it ranks you. (laughs) So I started at 23,000th on the list, and I am now at 1,200th. I know, that feels pretty, pretty good. Pretty, very good. And, uh, and uh, um, what I like to do, though, is I like to add verses to my list that I already know to pad my numbers a little bit. <laughs> so that's this verse. <laughs> I, I added this verse recently. I had it memorized already, but I wanted to put it into my, my memory rotation. So it's Ephesians 1, verse 17. It's quite familiar. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of revelation or wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the perception of your mind may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his vast strength." Now as you memorize Scripture, the, the brilliant thing about memorizing Scripture is that it gets deep into your heart as you review it, and you say it over and over again. And as you do that, eventually phrases start to jump out of you, out at you, and then words start to jump out at you, and that's exactly what happened. And we always talk about the spirit of revelation and wisdom, but this is what I focused on: the hope of his calling, the hope of his calling. You see, a lot of people, when they think about God's calling on their lives, they go into a panic mode because they assume that God is going to ask them to do things that are beyond their capability, that are going to cost them, that are going to be very hard. And you're right. It will be very hard. It will cost you. It won't be easy. God has never asked us to do anything easy. He's asked us to do things that are miraculous so that he can prove himself real. We often think about our, our occupation as our calling, but that's not necessarily it either. I I would do exactly what I'm doing if this church was taken away, out of our possession, I lost my job tomorrow, I would still do exactly what God had asked me to do as I'm doing in this occupation as a pastor. Because God's asked me to do two things. He's asked me to take children into my home and to care for the least of these, and kids from hard places, and He's asked me to teach. Those are the two things He's asked me to do. I would continue to do it no matter what I'm doing. But we often think that God's call should be easy, that it would be apparent, you know? But it's not. It shouldn't even be. We, uh, although we know we are precisely in the center of God's calling for our life, we know that, without a shadow of a doubt, things are extremely difficult. We are so overwhelmed so often. You know, there's just the pure logistical overwhelm that we face, like having enough seatbelts in your van if you're asked to take more kids. You want to talk about sacrificing for God's calling? When the three-year-old brother moved in with us, we ran out of seatbelts in our SUV. And we bought a van. It was tragic. I think Tara wept more than me over that. It was very hard. It was very hard. We bought a nice van, but a van is not an SUV no matter how nice it is. So there's the logistical overwhelm, getting kids to different schools. When kids join our family, they don't go to the same school as our kids. They go all over the place. So we're driving all over creation to get kids there on time. And it's taxing on us. It's traumatic for children to be removed from their home, and so it's emotionally taxing on us. We had one little boy stay with us when he was uh, three. Uh, He was almost four at the time. And... uh, We were told when he was brought to our home that he was nonverbal. He might be autistic. You have to understand, when when children are taken, are are apprehended from their homes, there's very little that's known about them. Very, very little. They might know a name, a father's name, something like that. And they come with maybe a bag of clothing, but not even that sometimes. And so they said, he hasn't spoken. We think that he doesn't speak, even though he should be. Um, And he didn't speak for three days. And on the fourth day, Tara texted me and she said, well, you wouldn't believe this. Our little boy came to her, and he had said, you know, I'm not ready to go home yet. I have more toys to play with here. And I don't feel as nervous as I did at first. He speaks. And he hasn't stopped. (laughs) It's been a long, long time of speaking. But uh, nervous, he spoke that. He goes, I'm not nervous anymore. Okay. So it's, it's overwhelming for us. It's overwhelming for the kids and it's spiritually overwhelming for us also as we seek God's wisdom and intercede for the tremendous needs that we have. We feel overwhelmed by the brokenness of the world. It's overwhelming. But the crazy thing is that when we have breathing room, when, when a kid, when a child leaves our home and there is a permanent solution for them, whether it's going home or into another foster home, and we have a break, sometimes that break literally lasts only hours and then they call us again and ask us to take more children. But this last time, we had a break of a week, almost 10 days, and every day the boys would come home from school, Caitlin would come home on the weekends, and they'd say, do I have a new brother and sister yet? And we'd say, do you remember the last brother and sister? You complained about them nonstop. Yeah, but that is all forgotten, and we can't wait to meet our new brother and sister. And when God does that in your own children, and they feel that love, you know, Sethi, he he had to put together a book of all his, of his family, like they do in grade three, right? He did this last year. He had one for his biological family, one for his adopted family, one for his uh, foster brothers, one for his emergency fosters, brothers and sisters. He had them all in there. I walked into his room last year, and he was weeping doing devotions. And I looked at his journal, and it said, God, please bring my brothers back home. Like, when God does that to your children and they feel not only the pain, but the love, then you know that you're in the center of God's calling for your life. And there is tremendous hope. Tremendous hope. I hope, I have so much hope that I know that even though some of the kids only stay for a short time, I have all confidence that that short time might make all the difference in the world. I just know that. God, I'm doing what God asks me to do. It wouldn't be that God would ask me to do something that doesn't have potentially eternal consequences. So I know that we're in the center of God's will. Second thing I've learned is this there's hoping God's calling, but callings don't happen overnight. Um, I think that there's this undue pressure on people to figure out what God wants for their life, it's really too bad. Um, I've spoke. I have many. We have lots of friends who are young couples, uh, newly married, and that sort of thing. Because that's they're the ones who. Well, we have a cell of young married um, families, and and uh, we have many people like that in our in our leadership. And so we know lots of people. And there's always this this anxiousness to figure it out, to know what God's asking me to do. And you can't do that. It's almost impossible. Tara and I were called into. Um, Terry and I were called to foster when we were 31 but we didn't understand that that would actually be our calling calling until years later, you know, and so we now know that but it took a while. I often remind myself and people who are stressed about this that my dad was 40 when he went farming. 40? Nobody buys a farm now at 40. Well, actually, my brother-in-law did. I was about to say that. Um, <laughs> correction, my brother-in-law did but it's from his dad so it's a little different. My my dad was 40 when he went farming and he built a successful business in a little more than a decade. My brother-in-law went farming this year. He's 39. He's going to do the same thing. He's going to build a successful business uh, as his father retires. Pastor Ray was around 40, 40 40-ish, when he came to Southland here. Think about all the growth that's happened since he was 40. And Moses was 80 when he stepped into his lifetime mission. Callings take time. And so there's no rush. And you know, many people have rushed into callings. In fact, you know, I know that there's people in our church who out of desperate love for children have chosen to foster children and it has not worked out. And that is incredibly painful. Unbelievably painful. But it's okay because God is going to continue to bring people closer and closer to what their real calling is, their lifelong calling. And that brings up another point and that's this. Everybody's calling is different. You know, even in the Bible, when you're given a directive, it doesn't mean that you're called to do that in the way that you think. A good example is this. Uh, It says in Hebrews 13 verse 2, don't neglect to show hospitality for by doing so, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. You know, I read this verse and I think, church renewal billet. (laughs) How many of you realize that you may have entertained an angel when you billeted a church renewal pastor? I want to entertain angels. I think that would be really rad to find out one day that an angel had been in my house. I thought he was some Latino pastor that I couldn't understand. (laughs) He was speaking an angelic language. I think that would be very cool. But we can't do it because our primary calling is to children, and that excludes us. It disqualifies us from allowing other adults to stay with us. So we can't do this thing that the Bible says we should do. We have to do it in a different way. And do you know what? The Bible does say that we should bring the the homeless into our home. We should father the fatherless. We should care for the least of these. The, the, The Bible says that. But what I want you to hear is not everybody should do it in the same way. That would be a disaster. Not all of you should be foster parents. Did you know that? In case you feel that pressure. Some of you are old. Some of you are, like, really old, okay? See, now, some of you think you're too old, but you're not Rufo. Rufo in that video, he's an old dude. I don't know what service he comes to, but I expect I'll be yelled at when I say that in the service he's in. They've got little kids. So you're not necessarily too old, but some of you are. But did you know that we were also too young once? If we had fostered, if we had gotten into that role two years earlier, I am fully convinced our marriage would not have made it. We needed, It's remarkable how, God, how far God moved us in our marriage in those two years before he brought Caitlin into our house. You know, you, nothing is the same. You, you can't argue the same. You can't have the same discussions. You can't get mad about the same things because you know that you have a kid who's been traumatized. Now what are you going to do? You're going to traumatize them more by your petty arguments? So we had to grow up. So some people have to wait until they're old enough. Not everybody's called. It might be a matter of timing. It might be completely a matter of something else. God may just call you to be a business person who sends these precious foster children to camp. And he says, make as much money so that we can help as many kids get to camp as possible. And that's your calling. Everybody's calling is different, even if it's a biblical calling. And you have to feel that pressure come off your shoulders. And yet, I firmly believe that more people are actually called to foster and adopt than currently are. So maybe if you've been had that niggling in the back of your head, today is going to be the kick in the pants that you need to get going, because I dream about the day when it's not 15 percent of our church is fostering, but it's 25 percent. I just dream about that because it makes it's such a profound witness to the, to the community, but only if you're called. Never do it unless you're called. And then the final thing is this: I do know one thing: if you, wanna, if you want to actually Step into your call, and you're going to have to practice renewal in your home. You're going to have to be a renewed family. Think about it this way. Okay, so what does a renewed family look like? Uh, First of all, a renewed family is not a perfect family. I assure you of that. I assure you that there are stories that I could never tell from this pulpit because we are not a perfect family. They would shock you. We are not perfect, but I do believe we're living with renewal. Renewal means that we care about our sin. We care about repentance. We care about forgiveness. We care about finding ways to find healing for our historical wounds. We care about these things. It means that we learn to hear God's voice. How can you possibly stand in the center of God's will for your life if you can't hear His voice? You're guessing at best. No wonder some people are unfulfilled in ministry and in their life calling. They're not listening. You think about just sin for a minute, though. There's two scary verses in in the Scriptures about sin. I mean, there's lots about sin, but there's two in particular. It says in John, this is Jesus uh, speaking, I assure you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Now think about that. If you're a slave to sin, how can you possibly be a worker for Christ? If you're completely enslaved with sin, how how can you do the very thing you were called to do? You can't do it. And then there's this verse in isaiah incidentally isaiah 59 right after the true fasting passage indeed the lord's hand is not too short to save and his ear is not too deaf to hear but your iniquities have built barriers between you and your god and your sins have made him hide his face from you so that he does not listen how are you going to do what god is asking you to do if he's not even listening because your sin is so profound Listen, we had 1,300 men from this region, a lot from this church, but even the surrounding region, come to this Conquer series to deal with hidden and sometimes not hidden sexual sin, to deal, clean up their past, to find tools to help them move forward. Now, I want you just to think about it. I, I'm speaking as a man now, but, so I can't relate maybe to this, but I, I, I kind of think that this is common to human beings. Rem- I remember as a young man the energy it took to avoid sin, I mean, just the sheer willpower to avoid sin. It's pretty profound. And I think that's probably true whether you're a male or a female. But you know, I know when God set me free. He set me free, 100% free, one week before my marriage from a number of um, issues of the heart. Free. And that means that I have not had to put the energy into avoiding sin that I used to. Can you imagine if 1,300 men could take the energy that they put towards avoiding sin into advancing the kingdom of God? You see, that's renewal. Renewal is when you can reinvest your energy that it took to overcome your brokenness now into helping others overcome their brokenness. Our church would change. This region would change. Our families would change because we would be free to do the thing that God had called us to do. You see, when you find the freedom that Jesus offers, you not only find freedom from sin, you find freedom for a purpose, and that's for a purpose, and it changes the world around you. And you see, when that happens, when more families are renewed, when they take this thing really seriously, and many, many families take this seriously, that's why we have so many foster families, that's why we have so many healthy families, that's why we have so many businessmen uh, giving the way they do, that's why we have so many teachers, teaching as Jesus, uh, as a Christian first, a teacher second. That's why, because we have renewal. But listen, when we have more renewal, the orphans and the widows will be taken care of, not because everybody's a foster family, but because those who are called to be foster and adoptive families will be doing their calling. When we're renewed, we step into the calling that God has for us. So that's the first thing I learned. The first thing I learned was about our calling. Our calling was very profound. It's changed our life. It's made me an advocate that I have never been before, but it also has done something else. It's taught me um, what I like to call the true heart of the gospel. Now, the true heart of the gospel is true for everyone, but the heart of the gospel is adoption. It is adoption. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit uh, for you this morning. In James, there's a famous verse. It's James 1, verse 27. It says, Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this: to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. A gentleman I recently met summarized it like this: True religion has two parts: private purity and public charity. Private purity and public charity. Now, this is this is true religion according to James. He was addressing a particular audience at a particular time. There are other things that indicate that you're a Christian. Uh, certainly there are. But James is calling attention to two things. He's saying to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That is the mark of true and undefiled um, religion. And of course, this is only one of a chorus of verses that speaks about this. God always defends the, the fatherless and the widow. It says in Exodus 22, and by the way, he's talking as like a dad now. If you can just imagine your dad speaking to you like this. He says, You must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me, and I will certainly hear their cry. <laughs> I can just hear my dad saying that. You must not mistreat your brother. If you do mistreat him, he will no doubt cry out to me, and I will certainly hear his cry. <laughs> <He'll>, ah! <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> right? There's one. Deuteronomy 10:18 He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow he loves the foreigner giving them food and clothing Psalm 68 Learn to do what is good seek justice correct the oppressor defend the rights of the fatherless plead the widow's cause And then my favorite God is in his holy dwelling place the father oh that's the wrong verse this should be Isaiah 117 didn't change that sorry You didn't notice. Okay. God is in his holy dwelling place, the father of the fatherless and the champion of widows. God provides a home for those who are deserted. He leads the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious live in a scorched land. Isaiah 1, verse 17. You know, I love this the champion of the widows. The champion of the widows. When my grandfather died in 2009, I went to my grandma and I said, You know what, Grandma? Do you know that you now have a favored position in God's heart? And she said, Well, what do you mean? God cares for a widow so deeply, you now have a favored position within God's heart because you're a widow. And she just said that, she had never thought of that before. It was very special. You see, I know that in, in ancient Israel, the fatherless and the widows, they were, they were very, very, it was desperate for them. If you were a widow without a family to care for you, there was no old age pension. You were you were stuck. You were poor. You were going to be in poverty for the rest of your life. Is what you were going to. So that's how it's going to be. And then you you know you have these little children who who have no parents. Well, adoption was not a value in ancient Israel. In fact, it was not a it was not a value in Jesus' time either among the Jews. Adoption was not. It was a value among the Greeks though, and when the Greeks got saved, then they started adopting like crazy. But God is saying. You had better care about the fatherless and the widow he's saying they represent a kind of person that is the least of these in society and he says you have to care about them they're at the center of god's heart and he says the way that you care about them is an indication of your love for me why was god so adamant about this i mean on one hand he wants society to function but do you think that there's possibly more going on than just having social systems working I think there is. I'll use a different example to, uh, I'll use a different passage to, to explain what I mean. In Ephesians 5, it says this. Famous verse, passage I should say, says, In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, or whoever hates his own flesh but provides and cares for it, just as Christ did for the church since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And right there you have the most famous marriage passage in the entire scripture, right? Except that very often we leave off that last little piece that throws a loop in our marriage preaching. (laughs) This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And then people scratch their heads. Does this mean I don't have to love my wife? no, you're an idiot. (laughs) Of course you have to love your wife. It's just that in loving your wife, you are doing something more than just loving your wife. Actually, in loving your wife and having a healthy marriage, you are showing uh, a blind world, an illustration of an invisible God. You see, marriage Is meant to point people towards God. It's meant to be an illustration of how God thinks about his creation. That's why the consequences are very severe when marriages do not represent Christ well. Consequences are severe when we spit on the image of Jesus by not protecting marriage. Very severe. Well, that is also true for adoption. This is Paul speaking here to the uh, Galatians. He said, and see, Paul could use adoption with them because it was a value in in their culture. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And he used adoption to explain a spiritual truth. So it's not that he's only commanding people to adopt. He's saying that by adopting, you're actually showing a a blind world how I feel about them. That's what he's saying. So this is why it's so important for us to have a a healthy system. You know, people, I sometimes shake my head. I can't figure it out sometimes. Sometimes. But people, uh, but uh, uh, we're often asked to take children very quickly. So a child leaves in the morning; by the afternoon, Terry's calling me. Two more kids are on the way. I go, why? Uh, And the social workers want to put them in our house, and I say, why? We're just doing exactly what we would do. We're just being a family. But you see, a lot of people, even who foster, aren't doing it for the right reasons and are not showing Christ's love in in their actions. We don't believe in getting respite. People think we're crazy. We sometimes get respite. That's a glorified babysitter. It's an, it's an, you know, we don't talk about getting respite for our biological children, and yet we talk about getting respite for our non-biological children. We just sometimes get grandma to watch them. But you know, because we say these kids have been through so much already, we need to be their parents for as long as they're with us. We don't even want someone else to parent them. We want them to, we want them to see us as their parents for as long as God has entrusted them to us. And so we don't get respite. We get very little, and we're tired more often. But we believe that that actually shows something to the world, and we believe strongly in it. You see, we don't just adopt because... Um, so, so what I'm saying is that the very heart of the, do- of the gospel is adoption, not only that we would adopt but also that we are adopted as sons and daughters. And there's things that I've learned. I'm going to take you through three things that we can learn about the heart of the the gospel in this way. The first thing is that we are all orphans. Do you know how important it is for you to understand this, that we are all orphans? It's kind of like when you realize um, that you're an orphan, a spiritual orphan, your empathy and compassion grows instantly for those who are actually orphans. You see, we often look and we go, oh yeah, you know, they're in a really hard place, but don't you not realize that you're also in a hard place as an orphan? (laughs) And you're actually, your empathy grows. Some of us are orphans because our parents have passed away or because they're unable to raise us, but everyone is a spiritual orphan. Until they receive Christ and are adopted as God's, into God's family. Everyone is a spiritual orphan. This is really, really critical for, for us to understand. Sometimes the Bible talks about it as actually being orphaned. Other times the Bible talks about it being lost. But if you have never come to... It's very easy to judge the person out on the street over there. Very, very easy until you realize how lost you really are. And you know, if there's one thing I've learned, oh my goodness. One positive thing That has happened because we had to say goodbye to our three boys was that we began to feel the pain of having children leave your home and you know what our compassion for biological parents who are not healthy enough to parent their children it grew like crazy because they the, the the children that enter care are just product of brokenness and we're all broken and if our brokenness puts our children in jeopardy, then we need to protect the children. But indeed, we're all broken. Every last one of us. And so our compassion for those biological parents has grown tremendously. We try to get to know them now. We try to work with them. We, re- we celebrate with them when the kids can go home. And we cry with them when the kids can't. Because those are their children. And you know what? You have to understand this. There is not a single person on the face of the earth, not a single parent on the face of the earth, that dreams that one day their children will be put into foster care. Not one. Even the most hardened criminal, of which many of them are not, deep in their heart feels intense sadness when they can't parent their own children. Intense sadness. We have so much compassion for biological parents. We just know that the kids need to be protected. But you see, that's grown out of an understanding of our own brokenness, under an understanding that we're all orphans. Once you realize that, it, it does amazing things to your relationship with Christ. For example, you learn how much that God loves you. I believe that we've we've come into an understanding of God's love for us in a way that some other people haven't because we fostered. You know, you think about this, how many times How many times we walk away from God, reject him, turn our face on him, spit in his face, sin against him. Sin, C.S. Lewis said, is not just bad, it is rebellion against the most high king. It's a very serious thing, sin. And yet we walk away knowing full, fully that he'll receive us back because of his love. Knowing that we've experienced his love in all sorts of places, we willingly sin. Can you imagine what that does to his heart? But did you know that the father in the story of the prodigal son, you know where he was when his son returned. He was on the hill looking. He was waiting. Who knows how much time had passed, but he was waiting for his lost son, his orphaned son. He was waiting for him to adopt him back into his family. And he ran to meet him. Um, God's love is a tremendous thing. It has, we have learned so much about, about how much God loves us, even in the midst of our brokenness and sin. I sometimes, I sometimes, uh, I had this realization the other day. A lot of people, when we tell them what we do, this, this is what they say to us. Oh, I could never do that. I would just love the children too much and it would hurt too much if they ever left. I just love the children too much. Can I tell you what that means? It means that we love the children less than you. Because obviously we love them less so that it's not as painful when they leave. And that's ridiculous. We love every child desperately, deeply. And we cry over all of them that leave. I often pray, in fact I was praying again last night, God never ever let me stop crying over the children that leave our home. Never. Because if I stop crying it means that I become hard hearted. And I don't think that the Father ever gets to the place where when we sin against Him, it doesn't hurt Him at a place of tears. I just don't believe that that happens. And yet, God says this. Brilliant. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. I love that phrase undeserved kindness I love it and it's been hard you know it's not easy when you have a kid sitting under a bed and spitting on the floor and then barking at you like a dog and then swearing at you Um, we had a little boy who could barely speak but he could speak the wrong words and we go what did he just say because that's his whole world When that comes at you, or when you get punched, and you get slapped in the face, and in anger, kids grab your glasses and they throw them across the room and they flip their beds, all of this has happened. Then you have to go very deep down (laughs) and say, with undeserved kindness, I will still love you. And then you may start singing hymns at the top of your lungs, possibly to bring Christ into the room, but possibly to just annoy them a little bit too. (laughs) You may do that. But man, I I just go, well, this is nothing that that I haven't done to my father. In fact, this is nothing that I haven't done to my own biological father. I've done horrible things to my biological father. and He's just loved me all the same. Why would I treat these any different? And I think that we've had a chance to exercise love in some ways that other people haven't, and that's actually really great. And then the last thing I'll say about the gospel being the heart of, um, or adoption being the heart of the gospel is this, is that when you realize that this, you realize that it distinguishes God and Christianity from all the other faiths in the world. And I have to be apologetic, right? I have to do some apologetics when I preach. But this is something I've thought very hard about. Did you know that there's no other faith on the face of the earth that has adoption as the center of its plan? There is no other faith worldview where the Creator chooses to adopt His creation after they've rebelled against Him. Not another religion. Think about the pantheistic religions. In Hinduism, in Hinduism the entire goal is to become nothing. Nothing. It's to enter into the oneness with Brahman. Brahman is the ultimate sort of supreme being, and yet Brahman has no attributes. Guess what love is? An attribute. So Brahman is without any attributes. He's without any love, and the entire goal of a Hindu is to become united with this one who has no attributes, no love. It makes absolutely no sense. Buddha. When the Buddha left to find enlightenment, he left his wife and his child behind. He left them. He left them to fend on their own. At the same time that, uh, that Daniel was in exile in Babylon, the same time they're learning about the orphan and the fatherless, Buddha's taking off in China from his wife and his son. And he said that the cause of suffering is desire, and so the only way to get rid of suffering is to get rid of desire. In order to not suffer in life, you have to get rid of love, which makes sense on some levels. If you don't love, you can never be heartbroken. What nonsense. Did you know that our heart gets broken over and over and over again? But I think that people have it wrong. They think that every time your heart gets broken, you lose a little piece of it. That's wrong. Your heart is a muscle. And when it breaks, that muscle tears and it gets stronger. So heartbreak does not weaken us, it makes us stronger. And yet, there's no religion that teaches this. Islam is even worse. Did you know that Allah is never, ever referred to as Father? In fact, that would be blasphemy to refer to Him as Father. And yet God, Yahweh, our God, is referred referred to as Father over 200 times in Scripture. But even more than that, did you know Muhammad the prophet actually made adoption virtually illegal? Difficult, if not illegal. And do you know why? Why? Because in, um, in 800 AD, which is about, or a little less I guess, which is around the time that Muhammad was alive, it was frowned upon to marry your son's wife. Go figure. But he wanted to marry his son's wife. And so, but he, he had to get around this law somehow. Fortunately, his son was adopted. So instead of doing the right thing and not marrying his son's wife, he made adoptions impossible. Therefore, you're no longer my adopted son, now I can marry your wife. And did you know that today, currently, adoption is very rare in Muslim countries? When there's civil wars that we read about, it's the Westerners that come in to adopt in fact, you don't, even, you don't even adopt other Muslims because that, can, that, might, um, that might pollute your family line. This is, at the core, it looks nothing like Christianity because at the core of Christianity is Jesus Christ making possible our adoption. Not only that, but once we're adopted, think about this, you know, an adopted child, shares the same rights as any other child in the family. With fostering, it's a little bit different. It it drives me crazy. We can't even give our kids a haircut without asking for permission. I'm not kidding you. But when it comes to love, there is no difference. So the heritage of love, the inheritance of love is no different in our family between children. But Christ, God, when when God adopts us, we become co-heirs with Christ. That means, in fact, it says this, that we share in his inheritance. We actually share in Christ's inheritance because we've been adopted as a child of God. Can you imagine sharing in the inheritance of God? You might wonder what is that? It's eternal life, it's a, it's a sinless nature, it's a glorified body. These are all things that were given to Christ as his inheritance that we will one day be able to share in. How worthless are we when we think about our sin and brokenness and rebellion towards God? And then he says, oh no, child, you have immeasurable worth. You just don't know it yet. You know, children come into our home, they feel that utter rejection. They say, oh, so many times, you hate me. You hate me. You don't even love me. And we just turn around and we say, oh, no. You can say that all you want, but you don't choose who I get to love and hate. I do. And I'm choosing to love you. Over and over and over again, we have to tell our kids that. We have to lift them out of that worthlessness and teach them that they have infinite value, just like God taught me that I have infinite value to him. In Ephesians, it says this. Remember that, and this is in closing, remember that in those days you were living, living utterly apart from Christ. You were enemies of God's children, and yet he promised, you, and he promised you no help. You were lost without God, without hope. But now, you belong to Christ Jesus. And though you were once far away from God, now you have been brought very near to him because of what Jesus Christ has done for you with his blood. What an incredible God we worship. I know something. I know that not everyone is called to be a foster parent, an adoptive family. That is absolutely true. But I really thank God that we got the chance to step into this calling because we understand this a little bit. It's helped us understand our orphan, our status as an orphan, our lostness. It's helped us understand that. Just like, I guess, being a farmer helps you understand the passages about sheep. That's true too. But the value in our lives has been immeasurable as we've stepped into the calling that God has for us. So I have two things I'd like you to think about this week. The first is this. Consider what God's calling is for your life. And I mean regardless of what it is. What is it? And now, if you're one of those people who feels in your heart, maybe there's a way that we, maybe, maybe it is true that we should foster and adopt. On March 11th, I'm going to have an introduction to foster and adoption. I'll go into much more depth details there. I can tell you what it's all about. Um, but it doesn't matter. Some of you are thinking, man, I know it's not right for our family, but is there a way that we can somehow still help the orphan and the, and the widow? And of course there is. You can pray for them. I'm going to be encouraging all of our foster families soon to choose an advocate family, a family that doesn't foster, who will be their intentional prayer partners, somebody that will um, bring them meals if they need it. You could be an advocate family. You could just simply pray. You could find ways to bring friends into homes. You know how many families don't know how to, they don't know how to have their kids friends in when their are kids in care. They don't know what's allowed and what's not allowed. It's okay just help your kids be friends that'll already be helping and maybe god has a different calling that he wants you to just reaffirm that could be as well and then secondly reflect on your own adoption as a son and daughter of christ and you know what in this room anytime you have a room this big with this many people there are people here who have not yet been adopted by god i know that you haven't it's a a very rare thing that you would offer adoption papers to an orphan and they would refuse it. You simply do not know what you're missing by not being a child of God. And my prayer is that today you would come to that realization that it is the richest, most fulfilling place you could possibly be. It's very simple to accept Christ. If you don't know how to do it and the person next to you can't help you, you can go to a prayer room and someone will pray with you there so that you can become one of God's children and part of a family that's quite incredible let me pray father I pray that if there are any souls in here that have not been adopted by you I pray that now they would choose you that they would say yes I want that I want you to be my father I pray that if there are those who feel that they're unworthy that they would understand their immeasurable eternal worth and God if there are those in this room that have wandered away from you I pray, God, that you would convict them in their hearts and that you would draw them back to yourself as a loving Father that you are. And Jesus, I just pray that as a church, we would learn what our individual callings are within the calling of the church. I pray that we would find our place and that we would step into it no matter what the cost. And I pray, God, that your kingdom would forcefully advance and take back darkness, that, uh, the territory that was stolen from us. I pray that you would do these things. And I worship you, Father, because you saw that it was worthwhile to adopt me as your son. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Selfland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.